everyone. Welcome to Short at Your Stula, the podcast that is both reformed and non-reformed at the same time. This is your favorite host, JR, and joined with me today is... Will Standridge. Will, are you reformed? That is my question. No, I am decidedly not reformed. Okay, because my co-host, Corey Barnes, thinks that being reformed means being a Calvinist. Are Calvinists and reformed people different? They're not. I am a five-point Calvinist. I am super lapsarian. I am as Calvinist as it gets, but I am not reformed. Are you so Calvinist that you believe in double predestination? I am that Calvinist. He is that Calvinist, everyone. So if you don't know what those big words are, that means he's a lot smarter than me. Um, I will. I, I will be honest with you. I do hold to the the statement that most Calvinists are smarter than me. So so and and like I just hope one day that I come to the light and I can get behind this. Hey, I usually hold to the idea that most people in the room are smarter than me. So, well, that's that's a, that's a humble place to be. Um, yeah, I'm not reformed because I do not hold to any reformed confession. I'm not covenantal. I'm new covenant theology, and I would probably slide dispensational before I slid covenant theology. So. So it's a so you're doing good for yourself. So, um, question: uh, Can you just give a brief introduction of yourself? Because I'm pretty sure no one knows who you are. Like, do you have any schooling? Do you um, like anything important about you that we might need to know before we start today's topic? Well, I'm a, uh, I'm a sophomore at Boys College in the seminary track program up at Southern Seminary. Uh, in Clifton Baptist Church in Louisville. I'm from Bluntsville, Alabama, right down the road from where JR was a youth minister. I was a youth minister my 11th and 12th grade year of high school at a small church in Blunt County called County Line Baptist Church. And that's about all there is to know about me. And when you graduate, aren't you going to get your undergrad and your graduate degree at the same time? I'll be 22 years old with my MDiv and my bachelor's. I will be over 30 and still working on my MDiv. So. <laughs> okay, so so this is a topic that I think is important for uh, for us to talk about uh, because I know that right now where you work, you're you're working with non-believers and you are you are you are presenting to them the gospel. And both of us have been youth ministers before. We've worked in a church before. And I want to talk about the sinner's prayer tonight. Uh, what is what is the sinner's prayer? Well, I don't know. I'm a Calvinist. Yeah, you're right. You pr- you prayed that in eternity past. Yeah. No, no. I think I think when we say sinner's prayer, what we're typically thinking of is when somebody comes to faith, makes a profession, accepts Christ, whatever you want to call it. It's typically when whoever led them to Christ, whether it be a pastor, youth minister, friend, it's where they pray with them the first time. It's usually pretty scripted, like, say this after me. And a lot of times it's seen as like the moment you were saved is when you prayed that prayer. 
I think when people say the sinner's prayer, that's kind of the essence of what they're trying to get at. It's that first thing you do when you're a Christian. Yeah, it, it's that prayer. You're, you're exactly right. It's the prayer where you like, pray after me, dear God. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've, I know I've done bad things. Uh, thank you. I know that you died on the cross for my sins. I know that you're buried and you rose again. Like, it's almost like the professions that people had to make when they were getting baptized, uh, like in the early church. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, like think about the uh, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, which we've been talking about on the podcast recently. I believe in this. I believe in this. I believe in this. But you say it in a prayer form. Uh, I, th- I think that I think that is the essence of it. Have you before we get started? Have you ever led anyone in the sinner's prayer? Yes. Yes, and um, I have, I have, I have, I have led someone in something like the sinner's prayer. I probably have done the sinner's prayer at the camps that I've worked at before. Are you for or against the sinner's prayer? I'm going to be one of the very few Calvinists who actually is not against the sinner's prayer. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to be one of the very few non-Calvinists. Uh, Wait. All of the non-Calvinists are for it, uh, so I'm I'm with the majority of my group on this. I'm going to say that I am for the sinner's prayer as well. Why do you think? Uh, why like we're having this conversation? We we'll probably have people listening that don't know that people are against it. Why do you think though that we have people that are against the sinner's prayer? I think what normally ends up happening while people end up against it is not so much the fact that somebody is praying when they become a Christian. I think it's normally the things that surround the sinner's prayer and the theology that some people look back on the sinner's prayer with after it's said. So while so many, I think, reform people and just really, not reform people, but just so many evangelicals now are rejecting it is because it almost becomes a sacrament. It becomes this thing where you have to do it to save. It's, yeah, you have to do it to be saved. It's the moment in which you're saved. And it's usually preceded by 12 verses of just as I am and an altar call. And you feel like if somebody doesn't go up there and receive Christ with the sinner's prayer that you're not getting out of church that day, the Methodist will beat you to lunch or something. <laughs> and it's sort of this weird thing where you pray and then you're a member of the church. There's no discipleship. That's just it. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I'm good. And obviously that that should be rejected. That that's bad. That's not what a biblical conversion looks like necessarily. Yeah. But I think Go ahead. In um in J D Greer's book, um, Stop Asking Jesus into Your Heart, he talks about playing basketball with a guy and him asking the guy if he was if he believed in Jesus or not, and the guy like replied, I've prayed the prayer. And we've all heard that from someone before. I've prayed the prayer, so I'm good. And I think that I think that comes from a flawed understanding about who God is. Like God is not like a ma- magical genie in the sky, but He is mm-hmm. like Jesus is is uh, our King and God is our Creator. And we just assume that we make these weird assumptions, or people make these weird assumptions about about heaven and how to get into heaven and what faith is. But but yes, c- let's continue talking about. Um, Let's continue talking about the things that surround the sinner's prayer that that could be bad. Well, I mean, I think generally the worst thing that we see associated with the sinner's prayer is that people make that the proof of salvation, that that is why you're saved. That is your assurance. 
You know, you write the date, you set that prayer down in the back of your Bible, and when Satan, you know, causes you to doubt, you look and see that when you were saved in your Bible type. Weird stuff like that. And that, that's not at all good. That's not good assurance. That's not good discipleship. Anything like that. But I think that the rejection of the sinner's prayer has much more to do with the events surrounding it than the actual prayer itself. Yeah, um, I, I think some of this has to do with uh, this overall idea that I, I don't... I don't want to blame it on Billy Graham. I don't think it's his fault. I don't think that he's in, I don't think that he. This was his intent. Uh, I, I, but there's this easy believism that's happened. Like like God died on the cross for your sins. If you believe that and you say this prayer, then you're saved. Do you think that? Do you think that the misconstruction of the sinner's prayer draws from uh, bad evangelism in the '70s and '80s and the '90s? I think it's bad church history normally to try to pin like an error in the church abroad on one person or on one generation or anything because normally these things take several generations of build up, several different influences who may not even realize that they're influencing it. So, so I think it's hard to you know pin it on somebody, mm-hmm. but I, I think that a lot of it has to do with. I mean, in the 70s, you have the Crusades, and you have all of these mass evangelism conferences, and you have these regenerate, these salvations occurring outside of the local church. And they're trying to look for some way to categorize all these salvations happening not in church. And so what they do is they have these people pray this prayer, sign this card, whatever it is, and that's how you count how many people were saved. And that just sort of bled over into church. And I think it was primarily a way people just tried to categorize how many people were at a conference or a crusade or how many people made a profession of Christ. I don't think it was ever intended to be this thing that made you a Christian. I don't think Billy Graham would have ever said that that made you a Christian. Oh, yeah. I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to slander the name of Billy Graham because Billy Graham is amazing, uh, but he is—he's just the easiest name that comes to mind. Like we can talk about like Jesus explosion and stuff like that, but I do like this idea that you have of like salvations happening outside of the local church and how we categorize them. And I think one of the biggest problems with the sinner's prayer, or or with the events surrounding the sinner's prayer, is that is the local church even if they get the information it's like where is our follow-up with this mm-hmm. well it's sort of like you'll see the sinner's prayer take a take it like this a lot of the time you'll have all these verses of a hymn or a worship song somebody will come down to the front kneel at the altar the pastor will get beside them they'll pray and then you stand up and they're believers members of the local church like you, you haven't taken any time to even talk with them, discuss with them, to see if they really do follow Christ, if they even understand what you're trying to say, or if they're just repeating something. And that's where the problem lies. I don't think the problem has ever been in the prayer. The problem has always been in how the prayer was misconstrued to be something it wasn't. And normally I don't even think the pastor means it like it's taken. It's the person who prays it who's not a Christian and then ends up thinking that they're a Christian the rest of their life because they were just admitted into the church upon an altar call with no discipleship, no no follow-up. It's just easy. 
I, I, I think part of the problem, part of the problem with this too is like, I understand what was going through myself when, uh, I made the profession of faith and, and I, and I, and I said the sinner's prayer when I was 18. Like, I understood, like, I am making Jesus the Lord of my life. He is going to dictate my moves. He's going to lead my steps, right? I'm going to say this prayer. Now, I, I understand the feelings that are in me, but when we're interacting with other people, they might not comprehend stuff on the same level as we do. Like, they might just say, I'm really scared of hell, and this guy's telling me how I can get to heaven. So if I follow these steps, we'll do that. So um, do you think that will play a role in it? Like, because conversion for us, or or this conversion for us is, like, it, it was something that was understandable. So when we're praying with someone, we expect that they're having the same experience as we are. Right. And that, that's why these questions and these meetings and stuff are so important with the pastor, with whoever's leading you to Christ, because they need to be able to see if you're thinking those same things. But so often what happens is somebody just comes down there, says they want to be saved, you pray the prayer, and you have no idea what's actually going on in there. Yes. They could have you know, done something really detestable the night before, and they think that doing that's going to be a good way to sort of clean up their cred, or it could be somebody's having problems in their marriage and they think well I'll try this and see if it works and you're not going to know that unless you've invested into this person to see whether or not they're actually coming to Christ for Christ or whether or not it's some other kind of emotional experience it really has nothing to do with faith in Christ and justification before God and the desire to live for Jesus so I think before any type of prayers prayed, any type of, you know, sort of signatures put on this profession, you've got to be able to invest in this person and see if it's genuine, see if it's real, see if it is actual conversion. And, and what would we, is there, is there a key word that we would call this investment that we make in someone, something that the local church might have been missing out on for a while? I mean, I just think it's good evangelism. Evangelism, I'd say discipleship. I don't know that I would call it discipleship with an unbeliever. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh, so, discipleship is going to follow uh, follow regeneration. Is that what we're saying? Yes. Okay. I, mean, I think you can evangelize somebody, and that evangelism naturally leads into discipleship with that person. Okay. I think that's, hel- that's healthy. Yeah. Uh, the line... The line there is a little bit blurry for me because you could like when do you, when do you say uh, evangelism stops and discipleship starts? What well, there's a blurry line there, but I understand the the base distinction that you made between sharing the gospel and evangelizing someone, leading them to the baptismal waters, and then continuing the process of teaching them afterwards. But right. but I don't I I think. Part of our part of our large problem is that we have no programs in place to continue the process afterwards. Right, because you just you go up there, you know, you get a motion in a second, you're a member of the church, and you go sit in the congregation like everyone else. Yeah, and we don't we don't tell them how to we don't we don't e- explain to them the necessities of the things that are going to happen next. But in most of that's not their fault. I think a lot of the fault lies in the fact that we have. A lot of people in churches that 
have no interest in discipling a new believer. They see no need in discipling a new believer. You know, they said the prayer, they're good. That's not my job. I'm not a preacher. Yeah. I'm not a youth minister. Yeah. I don't need to come, to come alongside this person. But in reality, what we need is through our preaching of the gospel and our preaching in churches, we need to be equipping our congregants to say, when this person comes to faith in Christ, like, we want people in the congregation jumping at the chance to take that person under their wing and show them what it means to be a Christian in the real world. And Pastors aren't super Christians. Like, they're not there to do your job as a Christian. Like, you didn't, you didn't pay them money so they could do your job. You paid them money so they could teach you to do your job. Right. I mean, just because you're not a pastor or a youth minister doesn't let you off the hook in terms of preaching the gospel and teaching and discipling and evangelizing and being an apologist. Like, you don't get let off the hook just because you're not a vocational minister. That's the job of every Christian. I will I will agree wholeheartedly with that. And and I think I think too, like assuming that the pastor assuming the pastor is gonna take this role is part of easy believism. Like I said the prayer, I show up to church, the pastors or the pastoral staff or the deacons, they do the job of the church and I take from the church what I need from the church. Mm-hmm. So I take Yeah. Yeah. So my question, my question is: So we see how, and we see how the sinner's prayer is done wrong. All like we, uh, we, we don't have pre, we don't have pre stuff for it. We don't have follow up for it. We don't explain salvation well. Uh, we get people whipped into a frenzy. Uh, how can we do the sinner's prayer right? That is, that is my question. I think the first thing we need to do is we need to quit seeing the sinner's prayer as the moment that somebody was saved. Is that like, I think you said it before when we were talking about this, is that it's not that activation moment when you're saved. You're saved before you pray that prayer. What that prayer really is, is you crying out to God in thankfulness for the salvation that you've received. And a lot of times as a new Christian, you're not going to know how to have the words. And you have somebody, whether it be the pastor, the youth minister, the person who led you to Christ there, to sort of help show you what it is to thank God for the most important thing that's ever happened to you, which is your salvation. And so it's not necessarily, I don't think, you asking God to save you as much as it is acknowledging what God has done to you and thanking him for that for the first time. And really, it's sort of just the first step in being a part of your new family. Yeah, and I think you're right there. And something something we need to be aware of, like especially if we are like if we're at an event where we are praying with someone who ha- who like who we weren't personally uh evangelizing or something like that, we need to be prepared to ask them questions before we pray that prayer with them like why are you doing this like what is your motivations in doing this and even at an event like that i mean we might need to question whether or not it's appropriate for us to do something like you know thanking god for the salvation that was just received because i think a lot of the problem is we've taken so much out of the local church and just put it out there for conferences and revivals and things like that that we've sort of missed on the fact that a lot of this is supposed to occur inside the local church. Yeah. I, I would... If, if I was at a conference and I was a youth minister and someone gave gave a proclamation of the gospel, 
I would feel better if they would say to the youth or the people there, if you have any further questions, ask one of your leaders about this. Exactly. So, and, and, you know, so instead of having, for youth conferences, this would be easy. So instead of having like a mass sinner's prayer, just be like, here is the gospel. If you have any questions, see your leader about that. And I, and I think that the people who are supposed to respond or the people that are going to respond, will res- it, w- it will be easier for us uh, along the lines of switching from evangelism to discipleship. And I think another thing about doing the sinner's prayer right is realizing that it's not something that has to be done. Yes. It's not something like, okay, this person's saved, let's pray the prayer. But it's something that may naturally happen, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think a lot of us staunch um, Calvinist types would like to be like, I'm not praying with this person after they receive Christ because, you know, that would be the sinner's prayer, and that would be bad. Mm. We're not going to promote any of that easy believism or something. So it's just kind of like this cold, emotionless, this person received Christ. Now, you know, get them in a discipleship program immediately. No, it's okay to be emotional and vulnerable and pray with them and help teach them to pray. That's awesome. But it's not something that's required for salvation. It's not something that has to be done. It's not something you should feel obligated to do. But I think it's something that can be done well and be done right in the proper place which is normally the local church or with somebody who's evangelizing you and it should usually be followed by something appropriate like baptism and discipleship <laughs> hey uh, so i have a question for you so so we think the sinner's prayer can be done right or or we think that praying with someone after salvation can be done done right uh we can we can move away from the sinner's prayer terminology but praying with someone after salvation or after their acceptance of jesus can be done right you are evangelizing people at your work right now, and say one of them comes up to you and says, I want to believe, or I do believe, or I want Christ to be my Lord. Take me through the steps of what you would do with that person. Well, first, I mean, I would want to celebrate with them. I'd want to rejoice. The first thing I wouldn't want to do is jump into just grilling them. Mm-hmm. Like, like you know, they they want to become a Christian, and the first thing I do is, you know, put them through the ringer to see whether or not they're genuine. I just want to sort of be natural about it and sort of just talk to them about the gospel, you know, sort of see how excited they are for the faith. And once once I'm seeing that they really like that, I'm going to tell them the gospel. I'm going to maybe even, you know, pray with them or pray over them or something and try to answer any questions they may have. But I think the main thing I'm going to do is I'm going to want to get them to a local church immediately. Like, I'm going to want them to come to church with me Sunday. Yeah. I'm going to want them to talk to the pastor or the youth minister. Because, you know, we're saved to be a part of the church. We're not just sort of saved to sit there, say, okay, I received Christ, and then be disconnected. Like, the first thing I would want to do is bring them to the church. If they want to be a Christian, they're going to want to be a member of a good local church. That I I agree with that. Like, like you have you you are saying I want to be a part of a new family, and I want or I, I want to be reestablished in a family that I should have been in in the first place. Like so, so I think in understanding the true essence of the gospel, that saying inviting that person to church it, like that should be a natural flow from what they what they actually want to do um 
if I was to pr pray with someone who wanted to, who wanted to, I'm going to air quote this, but y'all can't see it, receive Jesus, uh, the first thing that I would tell them, I, I was like, if you believe these things are true, and you believe that that God that God is going to now play a role in your life as your Lord and Savior, then you're already saved. And the prayer that I'm praying with you now is going to be giving thanks to God for the salvation that He has provided you. I, um, and I started doing this when I was in, like 22, 23 at camp. When I had kids come up to me and they say, I want to be saved. I said, well, this prayer is not going to do it for you. Like, like your faith in Jesus and Jesus' grace is what's going to do it for you. But I will, I will lead you in a prayer in thanksgiving that God and Jesus, through Jesus' death on the cross, has provided this way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, and there, there's nothing wrong. I mean, when somebody receives Christ, I want to pray with them. Like, I want to pray for them. And I want them to pray. I mean, that's joyful. That's great. That's wonderful. That There's nothing we should be scared about with an older Christian praying with a brand new Christian. Like, that. that's beautiful. That's the start of some kind of discipleship, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, let's hope. So, um... Here we go. Here's our question, and we got we got about we've been we've been talking about a sinner's prayer for about 25 minutes. What are two two do's and two don'ts that you have about about people who might be uh, who might be around the sinner's prayer? Let's say that. I think two don'ts would be don't do it in front of a congregation. Like, like, don't make it this emotional frenzy where somebody comes up and you force them into that and it happens. Because that makes it seem like that's what saves you. So that's a big goal. Don't do it in front of the congregation. Two, don't ever make it appear like a prayer is what saves you. That that's going to lead to all sorts of confusion down the road. And it's just theologically really bad. But two, dudes, is if you've evangelize someone if somebody wants to receive Christ pray with them lead them in prayer by all means that's awesome that's great there's no reason not to mm -hmm. and another thing is don't be scared after something like that occurs to follow up with them do that follow up with them get them to a local church disciple them yourself if you can so my two don'ts are don't do it in front of a church and don't make it seem salvific. But my dues are pray with young Christians and disciple them. <laughs> I, I think mine. I think mine are a little flip from yours. My first, my first is don't is never lead a sinner's prayer without any idea of how follow up is going to happen. Don't do it. Like if you're like, I'm going to lead this sinner's prayer and hope that these people get it. Don't do it. Uh, I would say I would say don't try to get to a place of an emotional frenzy like like you would say don't try to get there to get people to make decisions. Right. right. Our goal our goal isn't to get people emotionally riled up to make a decision for Christ. Our goal is to is to proclaim the gospel to people in in hopes that they accept it. And and I you know and then my two do's is um uh, is do I do explain to them that a prayer doesn't save them, and do um, 
and I would say and do pray in a way that they understand that their sal- that their salvation has not come through the prayer, which is the same as the first one, but that's about that's about the best I got. Right, right. So, um, so do you have any any other parting uh, parting words that you have before we let him go? Yeah, I mean, I think that reform people need to get less scared of invitations of I mean, calling people to receive Christ. I mean, we need to be very open to the fact that the preaching of the gospel elicits a response, and we need to be ready to deal with that response when it does happen. Yes. And and so I think a lot of times, our, you know, overreaction against this easy believism, which is a thing which is bad, has caused us to sort of become cold against calling people to believe the gospel and not giving them any opportunity somehow to do that after the preaching. I mean, we have to have a way where people can talk to other people and pray with other people and ask questions to other people. So don't be afraid of a type of invitation. But also, do it right. <laughs> yes. And, and I guess I guess what I would say from the non-reformed side, I, re- I really like that, from the from the uh, non-reformed side, is, is that getting someone to quote unquote make a decision doesn't mean that they that they made the decision so don't act, don't act like if i just get people to pray this prayer or i get people to feel this mad that now they're going to believe in god like like they have to believe in god and i think they have to come to come to the full understanding or a full understanding a full understanding of who god is and that god is lord of their life absolutely for sure I'm, I, I will say this, and then I'll let everyone go. I'm so glad that I can have a conversation with with a, a Calvinist, or Leighton Flowers is a Calvinistic brother, and us and us uh, agree so much about so many uh, things that involve the gospel. Absolutely. Okay. And with that said, thank you very much, Will Standridge. We will see y'all next week. Thank you for listening to Schrodinger Still Up. Remember, like us on Facebook, find us on Twitter, and find us on iTunes. Thank you very much.